The first verse is Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The next is Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Please pray with me. Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you for the time of worship and for this time of reflection and listening. I pray that you would bless Brian as he speaks. Make him bold and fill him with your spirit that he would speak truth. But Jesus, also fill us with your spirit. Make us sensitive. If any of us have hardened our hearts against this truth, Jesus, take away our pride. Help us to live our lives in a way that honors you. And Jesus, we just need you so much this morning. And we confess that. Pray that you would be present in this time and that we'd bring you glory. Pray these things in your name. Amen. The wind. All right. Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you to um, have your Bible with you. And um, we will look this morning at um, the commandment that we should not commit adultery. It's quite uh, clear and short and to the point. Before we do that, though, I just want to just a, a few introductory comments, and that is to, <clears throat> to help us be aware of the idea that one of the biggest challenges facing Christianity today is the, the ethics that Christianity presents on human sexuality. And there is so much talk and discussion about that and so many opinions. And so if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian and you're unsure about reconciling human sexuality today and what the Bible says, I just want to invite you to consider the words of Jesus and to be willing to, to contemplate and think through what the Bible says about it. I want to... Um, be respectful and understand that people have different opinions on this, but at the same time, I want to try to be as clear as I can with what God's Word says about it and try to bring some clarity and understand what, what we're to apply to our life and how this should impact how we live our lives. And so, this morning, I, I want to do the best I can to teach you what Jesus says about human sexuality. Um, I want to try to persuade you to believe it, and then I want to uh, encourage us to respond together by giving our lives to Christ. There are objections when we come to a topic like this. For some people, uh, a natural objection would be to think that, that sexuality is a very private thing and it's none of your business. The church has no place discussing this, and it's a very personal and private thing. And in a sense, I want to respect that, but at the same time, again, we want to say, let's at least be willing to consider 
what the creator God says, the one who created human sexuality, let's at least be willing to consider what he says about it. The commandment in Exodus is quite short and to the point, do not commit adultery. And we can just probably all recognize, probably every culture in the world, most all mainline religions of the world would agree on this, that adultery um, destroys relationships, that it creates um, several different aspects of pain and anxiety and hurt in our lives. Um, and I'm sure, I know that this, this morning that uh, a group this size, that probably just about everyone's life here has been impacted by adultery in one way or another. Through extended family or close friends, it has had some impact. And so we'll take seriously um, what the Bible says. And here's my approach. Here's where I'm going to go with this. We will look at three views on human sexuality, we will look, number one, at the traditional religious view and how that falls short. We will look at a consumer view of sex, and then we'll, then we'll finish up by looking at a covenant view of sex and, and try, to, try to gain clarity in what the Bible says. So if you have your Bible, we will begin back in Matthew, where Jesus is in the middle of his sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a really important, really important verse that Jesus says, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, but it gets to the heart of what Jesus is about and who he is. This is from Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so if there's any, if there's, if there's one truth that we have to understand this morning, is that regardless of who you are and what you've done in your past, that Jesus is one of compassion. That he is the one who is seeking after people who are hurting. And that he loves people. And that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is it's a message of hope. It's a message of here is an ulterior way to live. Here is God's kingdom. Here is a new perspective on how we can live our lives. And so when he says then, <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's going back and he's quoting the Old Testament. And he's going to critique, and this is what we'll do. I want to critique the, what I will just call the religious traditional view and Jesus will critique this. And here's how he does it. Number one, he says, you've heard that it was said, don't do this thing. And this is where the religious traditional view would put the focus on the act or the deed. Do not commit adultery. Don't do this. And so the focus is on external behavior. And I didn't, um, I didn't do any research because I, I, I already know enough to say that... that um, within the traditional Christian, or what I'll call the traditional religious view, is that the church, people who profess to be followers of Christ, and pastors have serious shortcomings in our lives because if the focus is on the external. And so the, the religious traditional view has many shortcomings that we'll see here that Jesus is going to point out 
So here's number one. Here's the mistake of the religious traditional view. It's they took the Ten Commandments and they would isolate them. They would take the seventh and say, as long as I don't do this thing, I'm doing well. And the mistake they made is not combining the seventh with the tenth. The seventh is about an action and the tenth is about a desire. And Jesus is just bringing clarity. And here's what he says. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. And Jesus is talking about desire. He cares as much, he cares equally about the desires or intent of our heart as he does the action. So just a couple of observations about this. Jesus cares about who we are internally about our thoughts, our desires, the things we have, more than just the act. So Christianity is not just about deeds, it's about desires. And this is where Jesus is going to press deeper into our lives than just the, the external. So here's the mistake. Number one mistake of the religious traditional view is that the religious traditional view minimizes the power of sin, minimizes the power of sin, because its focus is on deeds and not desires. The focus is on deeds and not desires. And here's what happens, and I'm not gonna give you, I'm not gonna give you horror stories of, um, of people who have blown it in life, especially people in ministry or in church leadership, but story after story. And we can all, we've all probably experienced this. But here's what happens, and the longer you're part of a church, the more dangerous this becomes because it becomes focusing on what we look like on the outside and how well are we doing. And the longer you walk with Christ, the expectations go up and up and up and we expect people to be better. And we've all heard the comment, something like, I had no idea, I thought that person was a Christian. I had no idea, I thought that person was a missionary. I had no idea, I thought that person was a pastor. I can't believe that. Well, that's the religious traditional view because the focus is on the external behavior and we've seen it, it, it creeps into churches automatically. And what happens then, if you get stuck into that cycle, you continue to distance yourself from the internal person of who you are to focusing to the external. And what happens then is you don't want to let people down. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and you begin this separation in your life, and it becomes harder and harder and harder. And so Jesus is going to say this, He's going to elevate. He's going to elevate the power of sin. His point is this. He's talking to the most religious people of the day. And his point is this. Is that we are all equally in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're the most religious person. If you're the most externally religious person. Jesus is not impressed. It's not about that. And the danger of this is that when that separation happens and the focus is on external and not just your internal attitude, Jesus uses some really harsh words about people who focus on the external. In fact, he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one, one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than to your whole body to go into hell. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you've ever read this, you're like, what the heck is Jesus talking about here? 
I will tell you this, it's not literal. Okay, obviously it's not literal. Here's Jesus' point. Is that he's talking to the most religious people. And he's saying, those of you who are focusing on the external behavior, you have to get drastic. You have to get honest. You have to get real with who you are on the inside. Quit playing games. The religious traditional view is about playing religious games, about portraying an image to everyone else that thinks you're pure. And Jesus says, no, not one. Not one person. We are all equally guilty and in need of a Savior. That is what Jesus is talking about. Second, the religious traditional view ignores the subtlety of sin. And this is even what we, I, I talked about last Sunday, is that sin is crouching at our doors, and we always think it's not as bad as we think. And Jesus is saying this, no, it's always worse than you think. That your sin, that there are desires, if we're not dealing honestly with the things in our lives, the effects are worse than we imagine. If we want to understand what Jesus is talking about, when he's talking to these religious people who are focused on external behaviors, he's saying that we must be aware, we must be in tune to how sin is crouching low, it's subtle, and is waiting to attack. Jesus is saying that if you, the desires of your heart, if these intense desires of your heart are to look at a woman in the way that you want to commit adultery with her, it's equal to committing that act. And that's, here's the point. Religious traditional view, external looking right. Jesus says, we don't care about that. We want to look at your heart. Who are you as a person? Because your actions always flow out of who you are. This word, the word lust, is a really interesting word. It, it's, this, it's this word in a... I talk about this word a lot, or I, I, it's in the Bible a lot, and it is the word desire with a prefix in it on, attached to the word in Greek, which means an intense desire. And it's not always bad. There are many places in the Bible where this word is translated in a positive way. But Jesus, what Jesus is saying is if there's this epic desire for you to pursue that thought, he's not talking about temptation. He's saying about pursuing intently that thought. That's what he is warning about. And that's where sin is more dangerous and more subtle than we think. Because we can hide our thoughts. Jesus is saying sin is subtle. It's powerful. And what it does, it equals the feel that every person is equally in need of a Savior. So that is just a very brief, I know, very brief, and I, I can go more into it another time, of the religious traditional view. It's a self-righteous view. It's a smug view. It's an arrogant view. It's a religious view. And it's an extremely dangerous view. It is the view that people adopt who fall into sin, and we all say, what happened to them? And the focus was not away, went away from the heart to the external. Next, I want to just focus just for a few minutes on the consumer view of sex. The consumer view of sex is something along the lines of, I'll commit to you as long as you meet my needs. 
And I did, um, I just did a little bit of research. I'll be honest with you. I did a little bit of research and it just, it very quickly just becomes heartbreaking. If there is anything, um, if there is anything that creates the most amount of discouragement in my life, it's dealing with the brokenness and the hurt of, of what we deal with in the world. And, and brokenness and hurting people, um, we need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And a little bit of research that I did that I'll share with you this morning is related just to cultural trends and how there is a consumer view of, of, human, of human sexuality. One of the things, though, that's just really interesting, and I was talking to a friend about this, statistically, teenagers, 20-year-olds, are, are not consuming sex at a higher rate today than in previous generations. Sometimes you almost think that each generation is more sexual than the, than the last, right? We start with the 60s. Like, every generation from the 60s on has just gotten worse. Well, statistically, that's not even true. Um, one thing I, I, I came across as far as a consumer view of, se- of human sexuality, 1988, 37% of teenagers were sexually active. Today, 20%. So there's actually some decline. Let me read one article. This is from uh, a Rolling Stones article from uh, March of this year. This is referring to just cultural trends right now. Um, the context is the millennials, millennials, the 20-year-olds, which means, um, if I can pronounce the word right, they are pioneering their own right, navigating a wide-open sexual train that no previous generation has encountered, one with more opportunity, but also with more ambiguity, less sex, but, te- but potentially better sex, or at least sex that has the potential to exist as much for its own sake as it does for any other. Ideas of whom one can sleep with now and ideas of whom one can sleep with and how and what it means in terms of one's sexual identity have never been more fluid. The possibilities, and here's maybe the quote, the possibilities have never been so undefined. New York Times article, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to print it out, and I didn't, but it was a, of a woman who is considered the new Dr. Ruth. And she was being interviewed by uh, either New York Times or New Yorker magazine, and she was talking about the future of human sexuality and how she believed that the new trend is open monogamy. The idea that you are faithful and committed, well, faithful, is, I guess that's a loosely used word, that you are monogamous in your relationship with one person, but then allowing for opportunities to have um, experiments and and one-night relationships with other people. And that is the future, she said. Albeit, she said, some people might not like it, but that's what she believed the future is headed. What was really interesting, because um, I've mentioned this before, that my dad passed away when I was young, and growing up, kind of a normal thing, that a young boy would do is I would ask my mom, you know, things about my dad. What was my dad like? You know, whatever. And I'll never forget one time, this would have been 1972, 73, something like that. So right kind of at the peak of, I guess, some of the hippie stuff. And my, my mom said, well, I can tell you one story where he almost got into a fight with, his na- with our neighbor. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to hear about that. And so one night, our neighbors invited my parents over to their house and had a dinner. And, and uh, at the end of dinner, the dad, the, the man, proposed to my parents that they swap spouses for the night. And um, however bad you think your neighbors are, that's a new one, right? <laughs> Hopefully you're not having to endure that. And, um, and so my dad wasn't particularly into that idea. And um, my mom said had to be withheld from hurting the person. But that was the neighbor. My point, though, is that was 1972, 1973. And um, cultural, here's my point. Culture and trends come and go. But one of the things that's so different today is that how technology has changed human sexuality. If you have a, if you have a daughter, this should catch your attention. Uh, rape statistics may not be higher in year, than in years past, but the numbers are still shocking as ever. Every two minutes, a sexual assault happens in the U.S., and nearly 50% of the victims are under the age of 18. That's according to a spokesperson from the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. The demographic of high school and college-age women are at high risk for sexual assault. One story I came across, this is from a, a, high, school, a high school student, and this, this is... This is um, just horribly tragic and sad in the world we live in, but it's about a, a high school girl who, and I'm, I won't read it to you, but I'll just summarize it for you, but who was at a party. This is at a, here, here's the quote that caught my attention. I'll back up. Saratoga High School, with its country club environment. Okay, country club environment. That is the idea where life looks great on the outside. Everyone's beautiful. Everyone's fit, everyone's healthy, everyone's attractive, everyone goes on to four-year universities, and life is just always great. Well, not for this one particular young lady who was at a party, was intoxicated, was gang-raped, was um, the, the boys who gang-raped her took a permanent marker and marked all over her naked body, and then put, took their phones out and took photographs and put it all over social media, was mocked, and the story is just absolutely just heartbreaking, was ridiculed and mocked at school, called her mom, <laughs> asked if she could uh, come home from school early. Mom picked her up, went in the bathroom and hung herself. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, here's, here's the idea. Here's the point. Listen, we are created for intimacy. We are created to be close to people. And when our culture changes, and I'll talk about this, I'll finish with this, when our culture changes something to what it wasn't intended to be, and it turns into an appetite, like food, and we just consume and we don't understand that there's more to it than we realize, 
people's lives are broken and people's lives are hurt. And people hurt each other. And so a consumer view of, of sexuality is self-destructive. And so there are so many messages out there. And all I'm asking you to do, if you are not a Christian this morning, is well, do you just at least consider the Christian ethics of human sexuality? Because it, it does offer a different picture. And where, whatever your view on human sexuality is, the point we all agree on is we don't want to be lonely. We want to be connected to people. We want to be intimate with people. We want to feel accepted and loved. And the controversy or the differing opinions come about is how do we want to go about that? And so I'll be done with um, a consumer view of sex. And I want to just show you now what the Bible says a little bit more clearly about that. Okay? So a covenant view of human sexuality says this, that sex belongs in a marriage commitment which promises unconditional loyalty regardless of an unknown future. That sex belongs in a marriage commitment which promises unconditional loyalty regardless of an unknown future. And here's one thing that's, you might know this and it's just, just really interesting. The Bible, if you have your Bible, just turn just for a second. This is kind of, the Bible's, the Bible is so interesting sometimes. <laughs> All right, this is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 says, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then man said, and this is Hebrew poetry, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Here's how the Bible starts. A naked man, a naked woman, naked man reading poetry to naked woman. That's how the Bible starts. And everyone's like, they're like digging it, and there's, there's no shame. Like, that's every man's fantasy right there, right? Just being naked with your wife and reading poetry to her and not being ashamed. <laughs> the Bible begins with naked people reading poetry, and it ends in the book of Revelation with this thing called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where it ends, where it's a picture of the bride of Christ. Listen, if you... We don't know this, like on the honeymoon, the bride's beautiful and the man's excited because that's a really fun thing you get to do on your honeymoon. And so it's that picture at the very beginning of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, all kinds of places. The Bible, and here's what happens. When, when people translate the Bible out of Hebrew and, other, and, and primarily Hebrew in the Old Testament, some of the talk about human sexuality is so poetic and so graphic and so beautiful that it would be quite embarrassing. In fact, the book of Proverbs talks, let me just show you one. I won't try to embarrass anyone too much, but it says this. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, the streams of water in the streets... 
Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. So the Bible, the Bible is pro-human sexuality. That God invented it. And it's this beautiful picture of so many different aspects of our lives. And so whatever we say, whatever you say about the Christian view of human sexuality, you can't say that God is against it. Because it starts with naked people doing poetry, and all throughout it, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, all this really graphic stuff, really interesting word choice, and it even ends with this idea of this wedding feast. So, we have to make sure we have that understanding. In Genesis, if we go back just for a minute, you don't have to turn, but if you'd like to, you can. Genesis chapter 2, you can turn back. And, and what I want to propose to you is that the covenant view of sex creates the best opportunity for human flourishing, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for physical desire to be satisfied, for the things we all long for. And just a few observations from this, okay? So number one, the covenant view of human sexuality creates exclusivity. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There is a, within the covenant view, within the Christian view, there is an exclusivity. You are committing yourself to one person. And think about what that does to you in your life. That you are committing yourself, your life, to one person. Regardless of what the future has. We, no one can predict the future. And with this idea that your spouse, that you two, husband and wife, are committing themselves to each other, a brand new priority and exclusivity that you're sharing yourself with this one person and this one person alone. This view, this covenant view of human sexuality creates safety and security. It's a new covenant. And this is something that we all want. We want to be vulnerable, but we want to be safe. We want to be intimate, but we want to be safe. We want to feel secure. The covenant view of human sexuality creates safety, creates security, it creates intimacy. It's created to satisfy the deepest desires in our hearts. The covenant view of sexuality, number three, creates unity. It creates unity. It says this in Genesis, the end of verse 24, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh does not mean sex only. Sex, here's, here's the way we think about this. Sex is the visible representation of unity in all the areas of our lives. Think about how many different areas we have in our lives, in our relationships with our spouses. Sex is to be that visible part of unity. It's to be a visible way of renewing covenant. Think about it this way. Sometimes we have friends that have done, um, they've renewed vows. The Bible says that, that the physical act of human sexuality is a way of reconnecting, re, 
asserting, re-communicating that vow, that vow of exclusivity, that vow of safety, that vow of security, that vow of oneness. Sex is a beautiful thing that God created. And he created a framework that it works within. He created it so that we could flourish, so that we could enjoy our lives. He created it to sustain commitment. It's a beautiful picture of all that God intended for us. The reality is this, is that the Bible gives us a framework of what human sexuality should look like, but every person here has stepped outside of that framework because Jesus says that he is concerned about the heart and the desires and the things we think about. And maybe, maybe one of the most beautiful pictures of, of helping us to understand this when we step outside of God's intended framework of human sexuality is from John chapter 8. It's from the woman who was caught in adultery, caught in doing the act of the thing that we're exactly we're talking about. And here's, here's what happens. The religious, traditional view says stoner. Put her to death. Because they're preoccupied with external behavior. The covenant view that Jesus represents says this. This is John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Referring to the religious leaders who had already departed. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. She said, neither do I condemn you. Here is a woman who not only had desires, but did the act. The act that was so freely condemned by the religious leaders. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That's the heart of the gospel. That is the, that is the genuine and true understanding of, of what it means to understand who Jesus Christ is. Neither do I condemn you. Go on now and sin no more. That is the rescue, and those are the instructions to how God wants us to live our lives. There are so many mixed messages about human sexuality, and the religious traditional view will be very strong in your life. If you've grown up in the church if you've been a Christian for a while, if you go to Christian colleges and high schools, that view is oppressive. And it just, it kills. It does not understand grace. The Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus creating a community of people who want to change from the inside out. Who want to change first with their hearts. And then behavior will follow. And the order has to be right. The gospel is this. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done or said or thought, the gospel offers grace every day. His mercies are new every morning. And regardless of your attitude or your perspective on such things, foundational mess message is that Jesus loves you. 
and that He cares about you and that your past can be clean. We're going to worship this morning and my hope and prayer is that regardless of the choices you've made in your past, that you would understand the freedom and the forgiveness and the healing that is available through what Jesus Christ did. There's therefore no condemnation because Jesus died and wiped everything clean. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would understand who your son Jesus is, that he came to seek and save the broken, hurting people, that he came with a message of hope, a message of love that is available to all people. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that's suffering under the oppressive legalism of the religious traditional view, that they would come clean and stop playing games and and come and drink the living water, the grace that's available to everyone. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's taken on the more consumer view of, of human sexuality, that they would be able to reflect and consider the words of your son Jesus. That you created, you created us to live, and to flourish and grow within the intended framework you designed. Father, we love you. Pray that your love would reach deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.